pastors and uh, just a few weeks ago that we consider that there are people with those attitudes that are described in, in the Beatitudes, those characteristics, that it is those people, in fact, who are the salt, who are the light. That's our identity as followers of Jesus. It is who we are, and the encouragement simply is to be who you are, to be the salt, that preserving agent in a, in a place that might have some, some decay and some nastiness. And so, so if, if, if your workplace is, you know, kind of a rough, tough place and there's a lot of vulgar language, you don't have to be like that. And, and in the same way that if it's a dark place, that you then go and you are the light in that dark place. And last week, uh, Dr. Carmen Imes from Perry College with us, an excellent message. If you missed that message, I encourage you, go back uh, on the website, go to the YouTube channel and watch it, where it was a really good reminder that as followers of Jesus, we're not free from the law. It's not that we just suddenly focus on the New Testament now that we're followers of Jesus, or, or worse yet, just, you know, just the words of Jesus, the, you know, kind of red letter Christians, that's all that really matters. And it's not, because Jesus himself says that I have not come to abolish the law, but really to fulfill it. And so her message really served as an intro to what we're going to look at over these next six weeks. We're going to look at another chunk of Jesus' teaching that is going to unpack really what the Old Testament says and then how we live it out in our day and age. And I think it's going to be very clear to us that Jesus in no way came to lower the bar, but in fact calls us to walk in obedience. And that walk with Jesus is not a passive effort, but it is, with God's help, an intentional effort to change what needs to change in our lives. You see, there's no question in my mind that God wants to change us, to transform us, and that the goal of the Christian life is, in fact, to become more like Jesus. Are you surprised by that? We shouldn't be. That is what he's at work in us. That is what he is doing. And if that is true, and I believe absolutely that it is, then we really do need to pay attention to what Jesus teaches. And this Sermon on the Mount is the core of his teaching. And what we're going to discover, if in fact we act on what we learn, and if we actually walk it out and live it in obedience, it will start to change us. It has to, and it will. And that's why we're calling this series Living the Life. Because we're going to look at what Jesus teaches about the Christian life, and then we're going to encourage you to live it out. That it hopefully will be incredibly practical, and at times I believe it's going to be very real and hit some tough subjects for us, but subjects that we need to wrestle with. Now, I'm going to put a bit of my teacher's hat on. You, you see that Pastor Adam, my stagehand, brought the, the whiteboard up this morning. I never do this, so I'm really nervous about doing this, but I want it to be more like Adam and more like Jesus. Um, probably not in that order, but um, I wanted to just teach you a few things that I think are really important for how to understand the Sermon on the Mount and these, uh, these passages. So traditionally, when commentators have interpreted these, these passages, they approach it in what I'm going to just call a more uh, traditional way. It's not that it's a wrong way, it's a different way, but it's been one that has been widely accepted for, for many, many, you know, I don't know, probably hundreds of years, in fact, as they've studied um, 
the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And really, it begins with, and, and I'm also a terrible printer, so I'm warning you now, if you can't see this in here, you probably have no hope in seeing that, that at home. But essentially, what Jesus does is he starts each of these passages out, and he talks about first um, the Old Testament. I'm just going to abbreviate that as Old, T- Old Testament. And then he says, you have heard. So he brings it back to what the people had already heard in terms of sort of this oral transmission of the law. He says, you have heard. It's the Old Testament teaching. And then he comes along, and Jesus comes along with his teaching and says, but I say to you. And so the the idea is that Jesus now in some ways is saying, okay, you've heard this, but I'm going to now explain that to you. I'm going to expand on that. I am now going to say uh, what I think about that. So there's kind of these two sides to each of these um, passages that we're going to be looking at. And um, there's the Old Testament law, the Jesus teaching, and the technical term that they use is that it's an antithesis. Not that he's opposing the Old Testament. We already know that he hasn't come to abolish it. But he's, in fact, expanding on it. And so you have the Old Testament law or the sin. And then, in essence, some would say you have Jesus kind of building a a fence around this. So if you will, you can picture um, this almost like a well. And you're not going to be able to read this, but that says murder. And that's what we're talking about when he says, you have heard it said, do not murder. And then Jesus comes along and he says, well, I'm going to prevent you from even getting to that place by saying, don't be angry. Don't be angry. And you think to yourself, well, that's impossible, (laughs) I get angry. I know what it feels like to be angry. And Jesus is telling me, don't be angry? That seems like this super high ideal. That seems like this perfectionist type mentality that there's no way that I could ever achieve that. And commentators would typically say, well, that's absolutely right. And that's the point. You you can't do it. You and I can't measure up on our own. That's why we need grace, and that's why we need Jesus. And that's true, and it's good. But I want to suggest to you today, and really for the next probably 14 messages on this series, that there's another way of looking at this that I think is super helpful and is, in fact, transforming. Because it's not just, well, there's really nothing you can do but lean on Jesus. It'll actually give us some handles on what we can do, how we can walk out the commands and the instructions that Jesus gives to us. And so I want to suggest to you that there's a different pattern here. This summer, Pastor Adam took a course, uh, a Christian ethics class at seminary, and he was introduced to another way of interpreting uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so I and we as a team are indebted to Glenn Stassen for his work in recognizing this alternate pattern or this different pattern of interpretation. And his approach to interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, it includes this emphasis on our actions, the things that we do as a result of the teaching. 
It doesn't in any way reject this traditional interpretation, but I want us to say that it, it moves beyond the, but you have heard it said, right? And the, but I say to you, and it actually focuses on specific, practical, real life actions that we're called to do. And so Dallas Willard said this, he said, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. And I want you just to think about that, because I think that's a really important concept to understand, that grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So we can't, by our efforts or our actions, make God love us, or love us more. We don't earn his love by behaving rightly. But it is clear that we do participate with God in his work of transformation through practices or spiritual disciplines, or as we're going to hear call them, acts. Acts of righteousness, specifically in these first six um, passages. These disciplines really become a means of grace. It's the things that God uses in our life to transform us. The Apostle Paul in writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says this, he says, continue to work out your salvation, right? So it's not, you're not earning your salvation, but you've got to work it out. It sounds like there's some effort on our part that is involved in this process of transformation. And he says, continue to work out your salvation For it is God who works in you to fulfill his good purpose. So do you see, do you see the, this sort of this tension between recognizing that there are things that we can do, some effort that we can put into this transformation, but that in fact it is God who is working in us to fulfill his good purpose. I've used this phrase from Jerry Bridges many times because I like how he, he just calls it very simply dependent discipline. And that as followers of Jesus, in this journey of transformation or or sanctification, where we are becoming more like Jesus, there is a dependency on God that is a must, but there are disciplines or practices that we can be involved in that are intended to help in that work of transformation. And so I'm going to just show this a little bit differently in looking at, oh yeah, I can't even erase it with this, and just look at this a little bit differently now, and um, look at the way Stassen um, describes it. So he first says that we have this traditional righteousness, and we have a vicious cycle. And then we have a transforming initiative. And I'm sure you can't either see it, and if you can see it, you can't read it anyways. But bear with me. So Jesus affirms this traditional righteousness. And then he goes into a diagnosis of a vicious cycle and then this transforming initiative, which we might also call an act of righteousness. And so instead of just looking at it kind of two sides, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what he's doing is he's adding a third thing and he calls it then ultimately a triad. And there's 14 of them throughout uh, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Now, hopefully, I haven't bored you too much with this, but as I unpack this, I think this is going to make a whole lot more sense, and you'll see how we're going to come back to this over and over to help us understand what it is that Jesus is actually teaching us. And so if we just look at this for a second, we can ask the question then, so what, in fact, does the Old Testament say? And in verse 21, he says, do not murder. So verse 21 is do not murder. And none of us would probably have a huge issue with that. We wouldn't disagree with that. We say, of course that's true. It's the sixth commandment. It's found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. Because we know that it's wrong to take another person's life. And we know that if we do, even in our system of justice in our world, we'll face judgment, likely through a trial, sometimes before a jury, and we pay the consequences if, in fact, we do murder somebody. That's just clear and straightforward. We pay the consequences of years in prison, maybe forever. And we probably agree it's, it's wrong, and that probably is never an issue for us. And maybe a little bit like the Pharisees, you can look at that and say, well, huh, I'm pretty good. Because we often will compare ourselves to other people, and we'll say, well, at least I didn't kill anybody. But what does Jesus say? He says in verse 22 now. He says this. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that's from the New International Version, and earlier, uh, Natalie read from the New Living Translation. And so what we're getting at here is this diagnosis of Jesus of this vicious cycle. And he outlines some very serious consequences to our anger. And the emphasis here is, in fact, not on do not be angry, but it is on being angry. And you think, well, what's, what's the difference? Well, the difference, in fact is that when you are being angry, there's a participle in Greek that's used there that implies an ongoing action. So it's this continuing in anger and staying angry. And what it ultimately results in is that we, we treat others with contempt. And so there's uh, the word... Um, oh, can't spell contempt. Maybe I spelled that wrong. But... But that's the word there that's used. It's an Aramaic term of contempt. And um, when I, I caught, I don't know if you caught this. I should ask Natalie before I put her on the spot when she read that. The New Living Translation then goes on um, and uses the insulting phrase, you idiot. The NIV says, you fool. And, and we, I think we have such a hard time. It's almost hardwired in us. Like, that's such a mean word to use that it's hard to say it. And I know Natalie, she's like the sweetest person, and it was almost like she had to choke that word out. And and it is. It's hard for us to say. It's even hard for me to say it, because we certainly don't want our kids to go around and calling their sisters or their brothers or their friends or anybody these kind of names. But you see what's going on here. When we stay angry, and we have this these feelings of contempt, and it comes out in the way that we talk to other people, we can often get stuck right here. And this is kind of the messiness of life. 
And it can get really, really ugly very, very fast. And being angry has serious consequences. Jesus himself talks about judgment and going to court. He even talks about it as, in terms of hell. And, and it's all, I think, to make the, make the point so clearly that being angry has serious consequences, that it is so destructive. And so we should take notice of this. Unfortunately, I think that we may be all too aware of this. And we know that we have wounds and we have hurts in our lives because of some of the anger, some of the contempt, some of the insults, some of the words that have been said to us that still hurt today. And so even just in addressing it, you're probably feeling some of that emotion right now. But if you think of some of the damage that anger does, there's a, there's a physical damage, right? When you think of something that, if you've ever seen somebody get really angry, maybe it's yourself, but you probably haven't looked in the mirror, your face gets red. There's instant high blood pressure. Uh, you know, I did a bit of research, and, and it, it, the, um, I think it was the Mayo Clinic that had this list of symptoms of, of anger, and it's insomnia and depression and even a heart attack because of Uh, anger that we're experiencing. There can be emotional damage, right? Where, Where there's just these deep feelings of bitterness and resentment that we just can't resolve, that are just there, and and any little poke on some of those things, and we just explode. And so there's relational damage. There's there's broken relationships. You, you see people that get mad at each other, whether it's in a, in, a, in a home environment or even in a church environment where we're supposed to have this biblical community and we're supposed to get along and care for each other. And as we saw in the kids' video this morning, you know, work together and serve together. But I've known people that have gotten, at times, so angry with each other. And it breaks those relationships. And then there's, of course, actual physical damage, other forms of abuse, even violence. And when we hear those stories, it absolutely breaks our heart. I'm sure you could think of your own examples of anger. You know, road rage comes to mind. I, I saw a video, uh, it, was, it was a news, maybe, I don't know, six months or a little bit longer ago, where there was a motorcyclist on the Hendy who got cut off by another car And so the motorcyclist was so angry with this motorist that he raced up along the shoulder and while they're going down the Hende at 100 kilometers an hour is kicking and breaking the mirror off of his car. Like, what makes a person do that? Or you go to a a little rec league hockey game of 16 and 17 year olds and Somebody makes a mistake and the other team scores a goal and the kid gets so angry that he smashes his $300 stick across the net. I remember one time in high school basketball, why does this come back when I'm thinking about this? But it was a marked event in my life where it was a basketball game. I take the last shot. I got the, it was actually going to be a winning shot and I missed. And I'm not just angry that we lost the game. I'm angry that I missed the shot. And I remember walking over to our bench, and we had these metal folding chairs that you saw in schools in the, in the 80s and 90s. Maybe they still do. And I just went, and I kicked the bottom of the chair, and that chair flew off. And I remember my coach coming and just grabbing me, 
couldn't do this today, held me up against the wall and says, do not ever do that again. I never did. The fact is we get angry, but we can't stay angry. And anger is a real human emotion. It, it really is signaling that there's something that is so wrong. And what I'm trying to say to you is there's no command here to not be angry. The concern that Jesus has is what happens when we remain angry. The Apostle Paul, in writing in Ephesians 4, verse 26, he says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And so when he's writing that, there's an assumption that we will get angry. But in our anger, we can cross a line and sin. And I suspect that every one of us who's ever gotten angry knows exactly what that line is and when we've crossed it. Right? So if you're in a relationship and you're married and you're a spouse and you're, 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 you're in conflict and you're upset with one another and somebody just so easily says something and it comes out and as soon as you do it the whole thing either just completely stops because now, now, now the, not just the gloves are off, you've landed the knockout punch. And the person shuts down. And what Paul, I think, is writing in Ephesians is that we need to deal with our anger quickly. And so if we've crossed a line, we have to absolutely make sure that we get it right, make it right, even before the sun goes down sometimes. And what I say to couples in premarital counseling is, listen, if you've had a big fight and you're tired and it's late... Agree to talk about it in the morning, take a time out, and then deal with it. But we can so easily hurt one another. And so parents, pay attention to this. Watch your language around your kids, and especially to your kids. Because by just dropping a word that you cannot take back, those words could stick and, ha- and hang out for the rest of your kid's life until they actually deal with it. We'll talk about that in a second. But they will remember those things for a long time. And if you don't think that's true, think about some of the things that you remember from your childhood. And so anger can cause these deep wounds. Maybe you've heard this before. Hurt people hurt people. And it's Really a vicious cycle. And so what what Jesus is really saying is we have this traditional righteousness and we can get so easily caught in this being angry, feelings of content, or content, contempt, sorry, and and being um, bitter and having all this resentment, but there has to be a way out of that, and that is this transforming initiative. And that's what I really like about Stassen's approach to interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. There's this transforming initiative that is really a pathway out of the vicious cycle. And so if you look just now at um, verses 23 through 26, because that's what we're looking at um, at the end here. These last few verses. And um, let me just read them real quick for you. 
verse 23. He says, therefore, okay? And it's interesting. So because of this vicious cycle, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And so what is this act of deliverance from this vicious cycle of anger? It's this. It's be reconciled. Be reconciled. Because you did something, because you said something, because maybe out of your anger you said something to someone that you wish you hadn't, but you did, and now someone has something against you because you hurt them or you offended them, then you should be the one to take the initiative and go to them. Don't wait for them to come to you. And so I just say, if you know, you go. If you know that you've hurt somebody, you have a responsibility to go and reconcile it. And Jesus, when he writes these words, is emphasizing the immediacy of going. Because haven't we all discovered that that conflict gets resolved when we don't do anything about it? No, right? It just gets worse over time because we haven't done anything about it. And that's why Jesus says it's so critical, it's so important that you are reconciled. And so even, he makes it in these terms, he says, even if you're at church and you're offering a gift or you're worshiping or you're praying and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, stop what you are doing and go be reconciled, then come back and continue where you left off. In other words, interrupt what you are doing. And what this means is that it's impossible to be right with God while remaining unreconciled with someone else. You can't be right with God and be unreconciled with others. And so how are we set free? And I use that phrase intentionally because we ended up here with Jesus talking about prison, and I think that can be descriptive, that we can even be in this emotional prison at times where, where we feel like it's all just anger and resentment and bitterness. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You can be set free from that. How do we deal with anger in a way that transforms and heals and delivers? And so there's this situation, again, where you have hurt another. Now, Equally, if someone hurts you, you also are to be the one to go, okay? So just to be clear, that, that as soon as you know that there's something wrong, whether you've, you're the offender or the offended, you need to go. It doesn't really matter who is at fault. And so if we first just look at this when you have hurt another person, and you know that it's come out of your anger. You just said something that was so hurtful that it just shut down that person. And you could tell the hurt. There was maybe tears. There was who knows what the emotional response was. The question that we then have to ask ourselves is, why am I so angry? Why am I so angry? You know, God, in the story of Cain and Abel, and just before um, Cain 
murders Abel. God goes to him and says, why are you angry? Why are you so downcast? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. What's going on inside? A friend of mine likes to ask the question. He says, well, why is there a number 10 reaction to a number 2 infraction? Do you know people like that? Do you feel like that sometimes? Like, that wasn't a really big deal. But why did it, why did it cause this huge reaction? What is going on? And so the first thing we do is we have to explore it. What is really going on? Then we have to acknowledge it. This is where we own it. This is where we actually say, you know what? It's really not you. It really is me. I'm the one with the problem. I do have some anger issues. I need help. So we don't blame others. We accept the responsibility. So we explore it. We acknowledge it. Thirdly, we confess it. Because once we know that it's an issue in our life, we need to go to God, we need to cry out to Him, ask Him for His forgiveness, and ask Him for His help. But then we also need to go and confess it to others, where we reconcile it. Where we go to another person, we say the most powerful words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And we all know that apologies can go a long way. And I'm sorry I hurt you. Not, I'm sorry if you are hurt. Either they're hurt or they aren't. If they aren't hurt, you don't need to apologize. If they are hurt and you're going to know it, then you need to own it. I hurt you. Period. Please forgive me. I promise to change. I will repent of this. I will make it right. So parents, if your kid breaks a hockey stick, They need to apologize. They need to say, please forgive me. And they need to pay for the new stick. But get, then so, explore it, acknowledge it, confess it, reconcile it, and get help for it. Because that anger that you're feeling and expressing, it may reveal something way deeper, that there's way more complex issues going on. And you may need some professional help to get to the root cause of that. So go to a good Christian counselor, someone who can can put together theology and psychology and help you explore the roots of some of that. Maybe you end up going to something like Freedom Session. There's a number of churches, most of them are on the south side of Edmonton. We don't, but it's a great program that's an intensive healing and discipleship journey. I think it's 20 or 30 weeks. It pretty much runs an entire year that helps you explore what is going on in the inside and why do I react the way that I do? Why do I have these, um, these, these issues in my life? And I also believe in the power of prayer. That God can heal us and transform us and set us free. That there's a supernatural transformation that can come because he's able if we actually just ask for help. Friends, I have more, but I think I've said enough. I don't know about you, but you probably have had experiences in your own life where you've gotten into some disagreement with somebody and some conflict and you've gone to them, you've worked, you've talked it out, you, you work it out, you resolve the issue, and you're reconciled, and that's a beautiful thing. That's what, what biblical community has to do. That's what we have to do in our homes and, our, and in our marriages. And so we need one another. 
And it's so important that we have those relationships that are, that are good and healthy. That Jesus would say to you and I that if you are offering your gift at the altar, remember that someone has something against you. Leave your gift. Go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly. And just consider this, that reconciliation is exactly what God does with us through Jesus. Because we were once enemies of God. But Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God took the initiative to make peace with us, to be reconciled. How can we do any less? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just really the huge implications that a passage like this can have in our lives. Father, I do pray for hurts and wounds that, that maybe haven't been fully healed, that were just scraped off a little bit. And I pray for further healing and further restoration. And I pray for reconciliation. God, for those that can look back at this and say, yeah, that was me or that was my experience, but I understand the power of reconciliation and being reconciled. Father, at the end of the day, we do know that we need you. But we ask that you would give us courage, that you give us boldness to step into these areas that maybe we don't like to go. We don't like what a message on anger raises in us. Maybe it just makes us angry or angrier. But I pray, Father, that your spirit would touch hearts this morning, that we would recognize how much we need you and that we would turn to you and ask you for help. We know that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and able to forgive us our sins. And so, Father, I pray for healing. I pray for forgiveness. I pray that you do a deep work in each of our lives, a work of transformation where you change us through the power of your grace at work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.